Welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. I'm Ben Sher, and I'm here today with Dr. Tommy Brothers, a physician from the University of Dalhousie and a PhD student at University College London. Dr. Brothers is here today to talk about his article titled Social and Structural Determinants of Injection Drug Use Associated Bacterial and Fungal Infections, a Qualitative Systematic Review and Thematic Synthesis. Welcome, Dr. Brothers. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. The first question is just what are social and structural determinants of health and why are they important in the context of bacterial and fungal infections? Social and structural determinants of health are all of the different things that affect the way we live and grow up and um, take care of ourselves or we're less able to take care of ourselves, uh, living conditions, income, racism, sexism, uh, and um, they affect all of us in different ways. Um, there's different ways to think about them. And, and one way is that people who have more power and more privilege are, you know, have more, more autonomy and independence to navigate the world and um, take care of their health. And so that affects people who use drugs um, to a great degree as well. Okay. And, and could you just take us through some of the, some of the main findings from this study? Yeah, of course. So um, as you said, this was a qualitative systematic review. So we did a, a thematic synthesis across 26 studies to try to identify what factors are affecting people's lives and, and how they do so. Um, we identified six different main descriptive themes. The first was that uh, when people access the unregulated drug supply, if it's of poor quality and poor solubility, it's damaging their veins, or if they have to add lots of acidifier to dissolve their drugs, that's contributing to infections. Uh, the second, the major one was uh, people who are unhoused, who don't have safe, warm, well-lit places to prepare and consume drugs are vulnerable to infections. And it also leads them to inject in public where they're doing things, trying to hide from the police, um, like rushing their preparation process and injecting in their muscles. We found a lot of reports of um, people describing really negative experiences in healthcare settings, uh, people feeling stigmatized, they're um, pain wasn't well controlled, their withdrawal symptoms weren't addressed, so they tried to stay away as long as they could. And um, that meant that a superficial infection like an abscess could progress and enter the bloodstream uh, just because people didn't feel safe accessing care. We found descriptions of um, operational restrictions on harm reduction programs that limited their effectiveness. So even when people could access a needle and syringe program, often they didn't have adequate funding, they had limited hours, they had limited geographic reach. So people had to reuse contaminated equipment. And then the last two themes uh, described ways in which people who use drugs care for themselves and others to try to prevent infections or treat them um, in the face of all of these other social and structural determinants. So lots of descriptions of, of people trying to promote their own vein health, um, sharpening needles if they didn't have access to sharp ones, uh, caring for each other, treating wounds and, and abscesses outside of medical uh, settings. Um, and those were the the main findings overall. Okay, amazing. I feel like there's a there's a lot to unpack there in terms of, mm -hmm. of the findings. Um, just taking a taking a step back in the introduction of your paper, you mentioned that um, rates of infection and hospitalizations are on the rise in um, Canada, the UK, Australia, the US. What do you think are some of the contributing factors for for these spikes? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's one of the, the reasons I got interested in, in social determinants of health and how they affect people who use drugs. There's some theorizing and, and people have proposed different hypotheses. In some places, the prevalence of injection drug use has increased. 
Um, but we're seeing increases in injecting related infections, even in places where the prevalence of injection drug use has remained stable. Um, some people have thought it's due to transitions in the unregulated drug supply. So in places where heroin has turned into fentanyl or there's been uh, you know, widespread uptake of methamphetamine injecting, those are both associated with more frequent injections, a, a shorter duration of effect. So that could be contributing as well. But but in this case, we're also seeing increasing infections in places where the drug supply is, has remained the same or it's still predominantly heroin. So I really do think the social determinants are playing a big role. Um, you know, over the last 10 plus years in many of these countries, there's been worsening economic inequality, worsening homelessness. Um, and uh, and and our findings suggest that um, those sorts of economic policy factors are, are playing a big role in making people vulnerable to infections. Okay, so in in your paper, you mentioned more of these kind of micro interventions, and also than the more macro interventions. Um, would you mind just going into a little bit of detail into what those two different um, kind of areas of potential solutions could look like? Yeah, of course. So the micro level um, interventions uh, for the mic micro environment are um, acting on. Um, forces and factors that are kind of more local to somebody in their community, in their neighborhood, in their city, whereas macro environmental interventions are on a much bigger scale, like at the level of society, states, countries. So a lot of the, harm, the when people think of harm reduction practices or harm reduction interventions, a lot of those are micro environmental interventions, like making, uh, you know, somebody have access to sterile drug injecting equipment in their community, um, having nursing outreach on the street where, um, that people are, are getting improved access to healthcare. Um, supervised consumption sites are, are a big um, microenvironmental intervention. So people who don't have a safe, well-lit, hygienic place to prepare and consume drugs, now they do. Um, so those can make a huge difference in people's lives. Um, but really what they're trying to do is counteract the macroenvironmental determinants. So when there's not enough housing, uh, when people don't have safe places to access healthcare, those microenvironmental uh, interventions are trying to solve those problems. Um, and, at the, you know, maybe those are more feasible, maybe those are are able, you know, we're better able to organize and deliver those on a small scale. Um, but at the same time, our findings suggest that macro environmental factors like criminalization, settler colonialism, racism are all playing a role in uh, determining and patterning um, who's getting these injecting related infections. Okay, brilliant. And just taking a taking a step back now um, into the methodology for this paper. Um, some of the more science nerds like myself are really interested in kind of getting into, into, into the detail of how you how you came to these findings. Um, could you just talk us through, um, yeah, what was the process? What did that process look like? Um, where you were pulling these different studies from? Um, and yeah, if you, if you wouldn't mind just talking us through that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this project is part of a, a larger systematic review uh, on social and structural determinants of injecting related infections. We had initially planned to do a mixed studies review. So we identified qualitative, quantitative, and mixed method studies. Uh, we were surprised uh, to find you know, a large number of studies out there and the qualitative studies included a lot of really rich description. Um, so we decided to separate it and have separate qualitative and quantitative arms. So because we were identifying all this really rich description and, and some really interesting studies, we thought we could dig uh, deeper and, and do a detailed analysis. So um, we undertook this, this process called thematic synthesis. It's quite similar to thematic analysis uh, you, people might be more familiar with, um, where, where the unit of analysis might be individual patient interviews or focus groups. And in this case, it was a thematic analysis of these qualitative studies. Um, so 
It involves three steps by the um, the methods that we, the kind of published methods that we followed. Um, first uh, involved line by line coding of the qualitative papers. And we really had to focus on the interpretations and conclusions of the study authors, because since we were reviewers, we, we didn't have access to the original um, qualitative interviews. We, we didn't know anything more about the kind of context of what was going on in those participants' labs beyond what was reported in the manuscripts. Once we had done line by line coding, um, meeting as a group, this was really a, a team effort with a wonderful team. We identified candidate descriptive themes, kind of organizing those codes by uh, related conceptual categories. And then once we had a number of uh, potential descriptive themes, we tried to think about how those might be related in the context of um, social determinants more broadly. And, and that gave us our, our higher order analytic themes to kind of help us organize the descriptive themes. Okay, brilliant. And were these mainly studies coming from um, those countries you cite at the beginning of, of your paper, or, or was it was it more broad? We've, it was really a, an international group of uh, studies. The vast majority, 20 out of the 26, came from North American settings. Um, and after that, um, the UK, England, and, and Scotland in particular. Um, so it did give us you know, a good mix of um, settings where some of these social determinants are playing out quite differently. You know, experiences of criminalization, um, experiences of access to harm reduction services and healthcare are quite different in some of the American cities that these studies came out of compared to, you know, the downtown east side in Vancouver um, or or the middle of London. Um, so that was a strength um, of the, the project in that we could examine how these social determinants were affecting people across multiple settings. Um, but it also meant we had to make some assumptions and inferences about how these might generalize. Um, and uh, and it really was still concentrated just in in North America and the UK. In uh, in the past few months, with the decriminalization of drugs in um, in Vancouver and British Columbia, um, stigma has been has been spoken a lot about, and and kind of the potential for decrim to reduce levels levels of stigma. Um, was stigma that came up um, at all in in your data, and yeah, how how did it relate to to the topic that that you were looking at? Yeah, I'd say stigma came up in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, a lot of it. Uh, we were relying on the reports of individual participants. So um, first and foremost, there was kind of interpersonal direct experiences of stigma. Um, people felt like they had to change their behavior to avoid being seen by the public. Um, people were injecting in more hidden locations to try to avoid visible abscesses. And often that came with trade-offs, um, you know, injecting in their, in their groin, for example, to try to hide abscesses. Um, but the groin has a higher... Uh, load of bacterial colonization. So perhaps increased risk of infections and also other things like arterial injuries in the groin. Um, people described stigma as a major reason that they stayed away from traditional healthcare settings, not wanting to go to the emergency department or the hospital because they'd had discriminatory and stigmatizing experiences there before. Um, in, in our analysis, stigma came up kind of more broadly as a macro environmental factor. Um, you know, what's um, disempowering people, what's giving them, um, you know, keeping them unhoused, um, keeping them as uh, being affected by criminalization. Um, there was a couple of studies where women who were mothers described not being able to access healthcare because they felt as if they disclosed their substance use, their children might be taken away. And, you know, all of these things can be interpreted as, as manifestations of structural stigma as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
And there was another term in, in the paper that I found really interesting that I, I hadn't come across before, um, practices of care. Um, would you mind just elaborating a bit on kind of what are practices of care um, and how are they relevant again to, um, to this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the conceptual model that we used uh, is the risk environment, which is one social ecological model. It's one way of organizing and thinking about how social and structural forces uh, shape people's health practices and constrain their options and, and pattern their health. Um, and so that model really encourages uh, thinking explicitly about how people interact with their environment, how they navigate it, how they push back against it. And um, as a physician coming from a biomedical background, you know, a lot of assumptions get made about people who use drugs. There's still, unfortunately, a lot of stigma in our training and in our practice settings. Um, so we were finding all these descriptions in the qualitative studies about how people were really prior people who use drugs were really prioritizing their own health. Uh, they were prioritizing the health of their community members, um, you know, navigating these constraining environments, trying to care for themselves and care for others. Um, and I, I thought that was a really powerful finding. Uh, we discussed it quite a bit among our team and uh, started to realize that, you know, there were major themes coming out of that related to how people are navigating their environments. So these are practices that people are undertaking to prioritize their health, to care for one another. Um, the language and concept is related to, you know, other things like care ethics, ethics of care. Um, but uh, we found, yeah, really, really clear descriptions of, of what people have to do to navigate these constraining environments, high risk environments, um, despite the fact that they're living unhoused or, or they don't have safe access to healthcare. Um, there's there's lots of descriptions of what people are doing instead, which was you know inspiring in a way, and I think can be really powerful. Um, for health professionals like myself to try to understand the other things going on in people's lives and how hard they're working uh, to try to stay healthy. Yeah, definitely. And what do you what do you think is the solution? I mean, what can be done to to reduce stigma within healthcare settings to make hospitals and make doctors' surgeries be more welcoming um, for for the people within your sample? Yeah, there's a few different things, and and locally where I am in Canada, we've we've been working hard on that, and I think making some progress. Um, you know, the, the biggest factor um, is often misunderstanding and a lack of familiarity with people who use drugs, uh, people in healthcare. Meanwhile, that's why we get into this profession. We want to take care of others, but we still learn the same kind of societal assumptions and societal society-wide stigma about drug use and people who use drugs that everyone does. So there has to be quite an active project to counter that. Um, one of the most powerful things that, that we've experienced is um, inviting and supporting and paying people who use drugs and, and people in drug user organizations and drug user unions to come into the hospital um, to participate in talks and lectures, talk about their experience um, and uh, what it's been like. Um, and that could be a really helpful thing, a major mind shift for a lot of health professionals that might not otherwise be interacting uh, with people who use drugs um, in settings like that. Um, education about harm reduction and about addiction treatment, opiate agonist treatment, all the evidence-based practices that we have and how those could be part of a scope of practice in healthcare, even though they haven't traditionally been. Um, but I think ultimately it does require policy change. You know, we can educate people and try to empower them to embrace some of the shift in thinking about supporting people who use drugs and helping them stay safe and creating welcoming environments in healthcare settings. But if our hospital policies and our, our healthcare policies are still um, you know, abstinence-based and, and punitive and prohibitive, 
uh, it's impossible to create a welcoming environment. So individual education, supporting people who use drugs to lead and participate in that education, um, clinical education, and then ultimately policy change to institutionalize some of these things. Brilliant. And um, in in your discussion towards the end of the paper, you you really highlight the important of the importance of these safer environment interventions, and you touch on um, supervised consumption sites and um, safe supply, and um, those are those things that can really be applied within the community. Um, alongside this, though, in recent months, these interventions have come under attack, especially in Canada within the political debate, and seeing kind of on the news and on Twitter, um, despite kind of Canada being one of the primary countries for implementing these interventions, we're now seeing quite quite strong um, kind of political reluctance to um, to talk about the evidence and to and to push these interventions forward. Um, what would you say to to those people who who are who are trying to fight back against this evidence? Um, and how could how could th- this research and your findings um, kind of really speak against this this wave that we're seeing? Yeah, it's really uh, unfortunate what we're seeing in, in terms of the the blowback and, and how harm reduction has been politicized. Um, we have uh, elections coming up in Canada and, and the, you know, horrific overdose death crisis that we're facing and concurrent crises of homelessness um, have really become major political issues for the upcoming election. Um, and it's unfortunate the kind of discourse that's a that's emerged around that is is that um things like not having enough housing in our cities um and things like inadequate access to harm reduction services are seen as a symptom or an outcome of of trying to implement harm reduction practices uh, rather than um an outcome of these social determinants um like insufficient income and, and homelessness that that um we talk about in our paper so um you know, we've we've been trying to change the conversation and help help people explain, help people understand that um, what what we're seeing is a consequence of harmful policy and inadequate um, funding and access to harm reduction, rather than a consequence of of harm reduction itself. Um, but it is a it has been taken up by a major um, political movement, um, so it's scary. It's scary times. Um, to think about the the kind of pushback and blowback that's happening um, for some of these things that you know still are not yet in, harm reduction practices that are not yet implemented widely. And for the for the um, for the average reader, someone who might not know much about this topic, um, who might come across your paper, what is kind of the main the main thing that you want them to take away, um, kind of from these findings? Um, and yeah, what is kind of the main the main thing that you you want people to take away? Yeah, I think. Um, you know, the idea that people who use drugs care about their health, they care about each other, um, and that there's lots we can do in health as health professionals and in society more broadly to support them to do that um, would be would be the major takeaway. Our um, findings and our analysis uh, show how social structural forces, poverty, homelessness, racism, um, are creating harms for people who use drugs. And these examples of micro-environmental, macro-environmental interventions um, are really trying to push back against those things and empower people to have more choices um, to, to take care of their health. So, you know, that requires resources, it requires options, it requires 
um, funding for harm reduction groups, drug user organizations. Um, but uh, to try to get outside that box of kind of biomedical binary thinking about addiction um, as the cause of these infections and, and think more broadly about how we can support people to be healthy in their lives um, with, with all of the kind of harmful social forces that they face, especially when people are living in poverty and they're unhoused. Great. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Brothers, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Brothers' research, um, you can find his paper in the Addiction Journal. <laughs>